Welcome, my friends, to another episode of Is That Really Legal? with Eric Rubin. Thrilled to have you. Thrilled to still be alive in the midst of the COVID lunacy. Uh, man, just please take care of yourselves. Wear a mask. Take care of the people around you. Wear a mask. Wash your hands. This is not hard, people. All right. Um, this week, we're talking with a lawyer. Uh, an amazing woman named Erica Olson. Uh, she's had an interesting path. She goes to Notre Dame for biology, decides to go to law school at Columbia, and ultimately ends up working in the pharmaceutical industry. And she's got some very interesting things to tell us, to educate us about pharmaceuticals and intellectual property. And it's very, very enlightening. Um, she's a really amazing human being. You know, her mom was a lawyer, uh, top of her class. Her grandmother was a doctor. And she came from a, from a family where she didn't have any kind of preconceived notions that because she's a woman, she couldn't do things, which is amazing. It was only later on in her life when she saw how women were being treated and it wasn't what she thought it was going to be. Anyway, you know what else is not what you think it might be? Abe's muffins. They're fantastic. They're allergen-free. They're vegan. They come in great flavors. I don't want to spend a lot of time talking uh, before Erica. I'll talk to you more when we're done. Uh, you can go to isthatreallylegal.com to leave me a message. But I think that you should just listen to Erica Olson because... She's amazing. Erica Olson, welcome to Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin. I'm so thrilled to have you on. As I said in the lead up, I've known you for over 10 years as a friend. I know your guy as well. You've been to our apartment. You've known my wife even longer as a friend. Um, what I find fascinating is your background, because a lot of people think lawyer and they think, oh, they studied history or politics. They always knew it was going to be about government. That is not your background. Correct. And hi. And yes, it's awesome being friends with you and your wife for longer than <laughs> 10 years. <laughs> so you went to Notre Dame first. I did for undergrad. I was a biology major there. And... That does not usually lead someone to law school. What was that evolution for you? It doesn't. You know, when I graduated law school, it was a time where I will just say it was a little tough to find a job. Um, and uh, so I did various kinds of odd jobs for years. Believe it or not, one of them was I drove the school bus for the YMCA. Wait, I want to back up. You said when I graduated law school. You mean drive graduated college. Yes, right? sorry. Yeah. Okay, that's cool. I first graduated college. Yes. Nope, that's no what problem. I meant to say. So you had a chemistry <laughs> you had a chemistry degree from Notre Dame. Biology, yes. Biology, sorry. I, I wouldn't say that's a walk in the park. And then no. you couldn't get a job. I couldn't get a job. I kept applying for various biotech and lab related jobs in San Diego where I lived. And it was just really tough without a PhD or a master's. Um, it was not, it was not a good time to, to get a job. And so I worked at the YMCA. I did get the bus driver's license. Um, 
and well, both that's... children around. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. Yes. Um, and I worked in customer service for a while and um, I eventually took the LSAT and kind of defaulted to law school because I seemed to think like a lawyer did based on my LSAT score. So I was like, well, let's just give it a whirl. So just so people don't know, for people who don't know, LSAT or LSAT is the law school admission test, right? Right, yeah. And back when you and I took it, I think it had a different rating. It was very similar to the SATs. And at some point, I, I know you're not exactly my age, but we're, you know, we've been doing this a little while. I don't want to offend you, but I think they changed the ratings to a different kind of rating now. I, I could be wrong. Maybe it was that way when you took it. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I just was like, oh, I didn't know I was quite this clever. So <laughs> let's... <laughs> well, clever enough, use of it. <laughs> clever enough to get into Columbia University Law School, which is an Ivy League law school and one of the top rated ones. Plus, it's in New York City, which, in my opinion, is the greatest city in the world. <laughs> um, I know you live on the West Coast, but even you have come here more than a few times to visit and you do enjoy the city. I love um, it. Yes. And so, what was it like for you? Because I went to law school in New York too which I found wonderful and distracting. Did you find it to be that way as well? Uh, I was very overwhelmed at first. Um, in the first week, I had my wallet stolen on the subway because I had the scared face on and not the New Yorker face on. Um, but I adapted very quickly after that. Um, and uh, it took me a little while to learn to strategize with the sensory overload and the number of people. Um, but honestly, uh, it was around Christmas time and I went to Rockefeller Center with a group of women and I just fell in love with the city in an instant. Um, and it was literally like just going from off to on. And uh, ever since then, I, I, just decided it was one of the most magical places. Oh, you know, all the right things to say to me because I love this place. Yeah, thank you. And we've hung out here. Um, so I know you love it. Uh, now, when you went to law school, did you, did you have a plan? Like, were you, did you know, okay, I'm going to use my, you know, science degree and mix it with my law degree and I'm going to come out doing X. Was there a plan or was there no plan? There was no plan. <laughs> other, <laughs> other than to pay off the debt that you accumulate from going to Columbia Law School. But, by the way, were there other lawyers in your family? My mom is a lawyer and I had a great uncle who was a patent lawyer. Uh, that's about all I can think of. Yeah. Well, that's that's a little unusual to have a mom as a lawyer. Look, I know you, I'm not asking your age, you're younger than me, but in my time, even, the women as lawyer thing wasn't as likely an eventuality. You know, I know that Ruth Bader Ginsburg talks about it in her movie. She's like one of the first people to graduate, if not the first person from in her law school class. Did your mom have law stories for you that that um, encourage you or dissuaded you? 
Well, her mom, my grandmother, was a physician. And when she went to medical school, there were truly very few women. It was just one and her other woman um, in her class. And uh, so I don't think I was raised as even acknowledging or understanding limitations for women. <laughs> um, it just wasn't uh, I, the role models that I had. You just went for it. Um, I think my, well, I know my mom performed very, very well in law school. So, um, you know, if you're going to break those glass ceilings, you, you have to do that. Right. Um, right. and she did, and she went on to become a divorce lawyer or family lawyer, I guess is the cleaned up name for that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> in San Diego and, you know, she built quite a career for herself and, um, then after that, she was president of a company, a, a trust company. Wow, that's but yeah. cool. Yeah, no, I know about all about breaking those glass ceilings as a white Jewish male from Long Island. <laughs> I really had to struggle uh, to the front of the lunch line, or I don't know, when high school to not get chucked into the lockers. That was my experience. <laughs> Very different. I do I do have one story about my mom, actually, because I was interviewing for a law firm summer positions, and one man that I interviewed with had gone to law school with my mom, and he said to me, you know, your mother edged me out for number one spot in our class, and I hadn't known that she had done that well, because she just didn't tell me that part. Wow. So, so your mom graduated yeah. first in her class? Yes. At, where did, from where did she go? University of San Diego Law School. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. The whole notion that there's a law school in San Diego kind of blows me away because I don't know how I'd study because it's so beautiful outside. All I'd want to do is go swimming or scuba diving or I don't know. <laughs> it's like San Diego is kind of like the sports capital in a weird way of the United States in my mind because you can do anything anytime. The weather is just like, sure, let's do this. And then if yeah. you want to ski, you can drive up to Julian in about an hour and you can be in the mountains. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, my parents were both part of some of the first triathlons in the country, um, which was founded in San Diego. So you are correct. Wow, you, your upbringing is so different <laughs> than mine. Well, I mean, both my parents were teachers. You know, they went to college and grad school. But triathlon for us might be playing three different musical instruments. <laughs> it would not be competing physically in any way. Or well, speaking none... three languages, maybe. But, you know, or, yeah, that just wasn't... Notre Dame was certainly off the table for us. <laughs> but, you know, going from... Here's a great question. Notre Dame, um, I, I hear you're about to take off. There's a plane where you work. That's yeah, a, I live right next to the Santa Monica Airport. Uh, we uh, can almost see the runway from our front yard, yes. Wow, it sounds <laughs> lovely. <laughs> it's awesome. I actually I, love the sound of planes. <laughs> uh, I actually, and I know that you, you have two German shepherds that yes. you love to take to the beach, which means you probably spend a half an hour cleaning when you guys get back. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Maybe more. true. <laughs> by, true. By the way, they look like they outweigh you. <laughs> they they don't i mean together they do um, they're lovely uh but uh i find 
you know, I've been talking to a lot of women of different ages and backgrounds, and you are, you know, like everyone else, everybody's different. There's no woman guest, but, um, you know, the fact that you had a mom who was a lawyer, a grandma physician, and you just said there were, you didn't feel like there were limits. Um, you go to Notre Dame, which is pretty famously a Catholic school. I assume you were raised a Catholic kid. Yes. Um, so being a girl or a woman as a Catholic, did you, did you end up ultimately rebelling against that? Did you embrace it? Like, cause you know, a lot of people are going to, a lot of people are going to immediately put you in a box like, Oh, Catholic. I know what that's like. I mean, I do that. I think I know what that's like, but I, I don't know what it's like. You know, because everybody's different. And, and I know lots of people of all sorts of faiths who have very different experiences growing up in those situations. But Notre Dame is like, that. you know, I, I went to, I'm talking too much, but I went to Yeshiva University for law school and I was not, I didn't believe in Judaism. I didn't go to services, but you know, I, I can't escape being Jewish at the same time. So what was that? What was that like going to Notre Dame? I, I think at the time, I mean, I was still pretty Catholic. I'm definitely a lapsed Catholic now. Um, but it's it brings a sense of community that is distinct from the religion itself. That I think is a beautiful thing. Each dorm at Notre Dame has a chapel and has mass every Sunday. So you go to mass with the girls in your dorm and a lot of times their boyfriends or their guests and um, uh, the spiritual side of it. Uh, I view to this day as distinct from the actual religion of Catholicism. And I go back to Notre Dame with some frequency and the grotto, which is modeled after a grotto in France is so beautiful. And I, I feel very spiritual and connected to higher power when I'm there, even though I'm extraordinarily lapsed as a Catholic. Yeah, but you're not lapsed as a human being. I know you. And I think of you as a very uh, a person to be, uh, oh, I don't know if the word venerated is a little over the top, but you, you have some fine qualities, Erica. I'll just put it that way. You can, you can laugh all you want to. But you do, you do a lot of interesting work, not just as an attorney, but also charitable type things, um, right? I have, right, you, yeah. Is there anything near and dear to your heart that you want to talk about as long as I sideways us into that? Sure, actually, I was just talking about one of the pro bono opportunities I took this morning, but I did... I took the opportunity several years ago. I, I had the opportunity to go with Pepperdine Law School to Uganda, and uh, we were introducing plea bargaining to a country that didn't have it. And that happened over the course of a number of years. I was able to go for a week right in the heart of the training for the judges, the criminal justice system there, um, and go to a maximum security prison and actually be part of the process by interviewing lots and lots of prisoners to get their story to put together their plea bargaining packages after they decided that's a process they wanted to do. Can I um, just want to interrupt you for a second for people who don't know. 
everybody knows that in the United States, under our constitution, you have a right to a jury trial at, at a certain level. I won't get too deep into all of the, the minutia of it, but you're allowed to not only have a jury trial, you can waive that and have a bench trial, meaning just in front of a judge. But a lot of times what happens in our criminal justice system is people plea. They take a plea, they have a plea bargain, whatever the phrase is, that means that they decide they're going to plea guilty, they're going to waive their right to that trial, they're going to admit to certain crimes, they're going to make a deal with the state or the government, and that deal can be one of many things. They can plead guilty to one aspect of the case, to all of it, they have some parts dropped, they can have the charges reduced, and they come upon a fixed punishment that everybody agrees to, sometimes, and then they're done. They take that plea. The judge asks what's called a colloquy or a whole bunch of questions to make sure that everybody understands the ramifications of these decisions. And then they're done. So instead of impaneling a jury and having a long trial, they cut that process short and they have certainty in their outcome. And it's possible if they had a jury trial, they might face 10 years in jail. And if they make a good bargain, they may be out in five. But more importantly to the system, as we understand it, in the United States, something like 90 or 95% of crimes are not tried at the trial level. They plead them out. So as I hear you say this, I'm, I can't believe there's countries where they didn't have plea bargaining before. So how backed up was their system? Well, the prison that I was visiting, which is the maximum security one in Uganda, has space for about 600 and it had about 2,000 inmates. Um, and uh, they also didn't get to go to trial very quickly. So they would barely know the charges against them and sit there for five years sometimes. Uh, that's before... another thing, right, in the United States. Yeah. Well, I'll let you talk this time. What's different in the United States, at least when the Constitution works, Something about a speedy trial. <laughs> yes, you have a right to a speedy trial. And you work in this area. So as you know, I do not. I was just a pro bono lawyer um, on a trip. But uh, Yeah, but yes. I will point out that not only has no one asked me to go to Uganda, but I'm not really wild about the idea of going to <laughs> Uganda. So the fact that you did, I am totally impressed. Um, that is fantastic. Now, if somebody said to me they thought that I should go to San Diego, to do some of that work I might be interested in. Um, but and by the way, anything I said, if you disagree with what I talked about with my quick little primer on the jury trial system in the United States, please feel free to let people know because I'm an expert, but I'm not always an expert. So yeah, I, I, I think the other thing about Uganda and countries that don't have it is not only are they sitting in prison for years waiting for trial, sometimes there's hardly any evidence against them. And this plea bargaining system that Pepperdine was introducing simultaneously allowed cases that had no evidence against the alleged criminal to be set free because they would agree to go in front of a judge and they would agree to plea to two years or something. But then the judge would look at the case and sentenced to zero or time served because it became clear that there was nothing against the person really. It was conjured up by the police or a friend or yeah, a so-called friend. 
Um, <laughs> right. Yeah, and um, and and then in addition to what you you said, people who actually had committed crimes, whether they were manslaughter or what have you, at least now they got a sentence and they had an end in sight. So they knew they would have 10 more years um, or, or whatever it was that they pled to. Um, right, in essence, we start a clock. When someone gets sentenced, you start the clock on their sentence. What we've been seeing in the United States, sadly, is there, especially for people who are uh, undocumented uh, immigrants, let's say, as an example, people are being held in custody but they don't have an end date. Uh, some people are awaiting trial, and if they're awaiting trial, or you know, because of bail considerations, things like uh, cash bail, which have been very much in the news, and again, has nothing to do with what you do as a lawyer, but um, it's so great that you're bringing it up. Um, there are people serving time in the United States who really don't have a sense of when they're gonna get out. And it feels very un-American to most people, including those of us who studied constitutional law. But these things are happening now. Um, so let me get, well. Just one more thing on that. There is a documentary that was made while I was there and it's called Remand uh, by Revolution Pictures um, on this prison project in Uganda. So it's a, it's a neat little movie. Um, oh, it's 40 awesome. minutes long. Yeah, it's 40 minutes long, and it's narrated by Angela Bassett, and it has some real uh, human interest stories in it. Um, it's it's yeah, it's a great little film. I love the fact that you know lawyers can go in and do something, and also people will never hear about it until Angela Bassett narrates a documentary, but someone takes an interest and makes that documentary. Uh, Ava DuVernay, I think I'm not sure I'm saying that right, but she's a woman of color uh, filmmaker. She did a documentary called 13 about the 13th Amendment. It's on Netflix. It's, I think she did it in 2017. I only recently saw it and it was mind blowing for somebody who's been living in this world and still learned things about the 13th Amendment and what has happened since then and in our culture. I don't know if you've had a chance to see it. I haven't. Well, then I just, we, we can take notes and talk to each other after about, after we see our respective documentaries. That's good. Deal. Okay. So, uh, you have your Notre Dame experience. You, uh, end up going to Columbia, which is an also beautiful school and very much doesn't feel like you're in New York city when you're on the campus. Right. Uh, the law school is is across the street from the main campus, so uh, a, li a little bit different. Gotcha. Are you anywhere near Grant's tomb? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> I'm, you know, I, it's not like I go to Columbia a lot. I've been there with my wife for uh, events for the teachers' college up there, so it's not like. Uh, but I have been to Grant's tomb too, and I do know who's buried. Um, so you leave law school and, you know, people have to decide where they're going to live when they leave law school because they, people don't know this, you can't just practice law anywhere. You have to take the bar exam and every state has its own bar exam. And so did you know you were going to move back to California at that time? Pretty much, yes. And for people who also don't know, every 
every state has a two-day bar exam except California, which I believe has a three-day bar exam. Is that accurate? It certainly was three days when I took it. I can't speak to what it is today. And it's also known around lawyer circles as probably the hardest bar exam in the country. If you know, I took, I've been admitted to the bar in three places. Uh, wow. you know, insert bar joke here, but Pennsylvania, New York, and Massachusetts. And someday I'll do a show about, so you want to be a lawyer and I'll talk about the bar exam. Uh, after a few drinks, probably. But um, you probably did what we all do, which is you take the summer off from anything except studying for the bar exam, right? And you, there are special courses, they charge you a significant sum of money and you go every day to a different teacher and they basically teach you how to pass an exam which has nothing to do with what your law school experience was. Is that <laughs> accurate? Much. Yes. <laughs> so I see yeah. you have a very similar experience. I mean, you just memorize as much as you, your brain can physically inscribe on itself. And then the next day you immediately dump 80% of it because you will never use it again. <laughs> right. Although there are funny things that I learned for the bar exam that I still remember. I won't, I won't treat anybody to them now, but they're handy perhaps at a bar trivia night. Um, <laughs> we'll see. Um, did you have a job by the time you graduated law school? I did. I went to work for Kirkland and Ellis in Los Angeles. And for people who don't know what that is. It's a big law firm um, based in Chicago. Um, they probably have around a thousand lawyers or something now. Although I don't know. Um, it's funny by, by law firm size, it's big, but it's nowhere near the biggest. This is not to mock you. I've never worked for one that big. I've worked for, I did work at a law firm in Philly where I literally didn't know a lot of people I was working with. And I bet you had a similar experience at Kirkland. Yeah, but I met so many close friends at Kirkland and Ellis um, because I joined and I was doing commercial litigation and patent litigation and their big ticket trials and you're in the trenches with the same people day in and day out. You order California pizza kitchen for dinner together and eat in the conference room and uh, weeks go by. <laughs> That's your life. So, um. yeah, I mean, for people who don't even know what this sort of litigation thing is, it's, it's basically it's when you're going to try cases. And so these two business entities are, or usually a lot more than two get involved and sue each other over disagreements involving millions and millions of dollars. And they don't know what to do, so they hire, you know, their best friends from college who are now the heads of law firms who then take these complicated matters and uh, pay, you know, brand new lawyers a fraction of the money that the firm is getting uh, to spend every night uh, till 10 or 11 o'clock at night in a law library uh to try to fight it out ultimately it's a little yes. bit of an over dramatization but i don't think it's that off is it <laughs> not not that off no but yes. what's great about that experience i think having done a slightly different version of that is you do learn a lot don't you oh my goodness yes i you're basically thrown in the deep end of the ocean and it's sink or swim time and uh 
most people are able to start swimming. But um, um, yeah, it's a, it, it's an incredible experience for for learning and how to write, how to advocate for your position, how to think, how to interact with people, all of that. Yes. You know, I think sometimes one of the reasons when people just leave the law specifically like a law firm as a lawyer and they go get another job, people with that law degree and that kind of experience are very marketable in other kind of companies just because they know people like us, I'm going to put us together in this. They know that we can handle the crazy of deadlines and strange statutory obligations and fine print and three different people yelling at you at the same time, long <laughs> hours, high stakes. And you're just like, someone's got a private jet going on. Yes. Uh, that's cool. Um, I remember watching a movie called The Right Stuff, which was all about the first astronauts. And they put them through all sorts of crazy, difficult experiments. And at one point, they had these guys spinning all night in this contraption. And one guy who failed out is just crying and losing his stuff. And this other guy, who ultimately was an astronaut, just looked at him and kind of just relaxed, took a breath, closed his eyes like he was going to take a nap. <laughs> and I feel like you have to have a certain amount of Zen to do the, the kind of things that you and I have done. Those we, we're on trial in three weeks. We don't have any of the discovery we asked for. What's going on? You know, someone's <laughs> kind of come flying into the room saying, we missed a deadline. How can we fix this? Or all sorts of, or I need 3,000 questions to go out tomorrow. Just a little, <laughs> like, I mean, do any of this ring true for you? And oh, you absolutely. Feel, and you feel comfortable in that water. Yes. And yeah, it's, for me, it's been so long, it's almost like I'm uncomfortable when I don't have a huge <laughs> list of lawyer things to get through in a day. Um, and Is the, that, and the, no, and I have the this term. I have a certain amount of cases that I handle in a variety of uh, aspects of my practice. There's criminal stuff, there's estates, there's contracts. And when I find that I don't have an overwhelming amount of work, I'm getting a little nervous. Like, what yeah. is this free time thing? This yeah. is not, as my, and you and I love the people that we're spending our lives with. They're great people. They love us very much, despite our craziness. <laughs> Because <laughs> we're lawyers and that's a whole other thing. But that, and yet we're like, okay, I can have three days, but then I'm going to need to look at my email because I'm just crazy. <laughs> yes. So, but good, good, definitely good training for um, becoming a strong litigator. That's for sure. So, and I was just going to say, and then I went to, um, I went in-house to a biopharmaceutical company. Um, now, were you, how did that happen? Did you just one day walk into the biopharmaceutical company and go, you know what, I think I have what it takes to work here. I doubt that's what happened. No. Um, I applied, and I, I did need to apply a few times uh, because they were looking for a certain level of experience. And... Uh, the third time I applied, <laughs> I had the right level of experience. Can I um, tell you though, I, I, I do want to interrupt you because I love that you are, 
in my opinion, one of the most successful attorneys I know, and you're not a partner in a law firm, and yet you're very successful. Again, because some people think there's just one way to be a successful lawyer. You're either a very famous trial lawyer who defends famous criminal people. I won't name any of them because the only ones I can think of are actually despicable human beings, <laughs> but good <laughs> lawyers. But um, then there's, you know, there's that kind of thing. There's uh, people who are the heads of these giant law firms like Davis Polk or Kirkland or Skadden Arps or all that stuff. But what you do, I think, is incredibly crucial. It's fascinating work. You obviously dig it. It's a completely different route that a lot of people don't even think about, I think. Right. I, I think many people think of in-house lawyers as just kind of moving paper around and not as involved in the heart of the legal matters of the corporation. Uh, that's certainly not true. Um, and simply because they also have outside law firms assisting them um, doesn't mean that the brains behind it isn't often the in-house lawyer um, in terms of ultimate strategy. And so what I did, I, I, I was doing patent litigation and I kept doing patent litigation. Um, so I did use my science degree, uh, both at the law firm and then in-house. Uh, in biology because the patents, which are developed around inventions of around drugs, um, you, you know, require an understanding of biology, genetics, that sort of thing. Um, I have two questions, and, if I can interrupt you. Mm -hmm. One, or a comment, at least in one, a lot of people don't realize that there are tremendous attorneys in the house, but just because there are potential conflicts of interest, legal conflicts or financial conflicts, sometimes these organizations have to hire attorneys from outside the company. Is that accurate? Um, I, well, I would, I don't know. I, we, a lot of times we have a hard time hiring companies outside because they work for the opposing party. Uh, so there, there's your conflict. Um, but our cases tend to be so big that uh, you could never have enough lawyers in house to staff them. And That's so if, if you end up having a big case, uh, you might have three or four lawyers in house managing an outside law firm that has 20 to 30 to 40 lawyers working on the case, if it's that big, and many of them are. Right. Um, there's no fewer than a dozen, let's say, outside lawyers on, 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 the, on the cases of the scale that I have worked on um, because they, as we were talking about just before we connected on your podcast, they're defending drugs that cost eight hundred between eight hundred million and a billion dollars to bring to market. Yeah, I want to talk about that because I think a lot of people see uh, these biopharmaceutical firms as just these. There's guys in very expensive suits making a lot of money for pills that help with impotency. Impotence? And that is not all that these companies do, not by a long shot, because I don't think that's the kind of thing that you would be spending your life's work on. So what is it that jazzes you or gets you excited or that you love? Because I know you, this is not something you hate doing. I know you. You're fascinated by this whole process and you have a a sense of mission, I think. 
So what is that? What, what is it that gives you a sense of mission working for a biopharmaceutical company? Well, I've loved the science since I was in college and that's why I was a biology major. So it's just an incredible opportunity to defend science. And that's how I view it. Defend science and innovation in the sense that this country is the person who brings the, or the entity who is able to discover and develop medicines that help patients, the first ones to do it, get the patent. And that patent has a lifespan. I don't know if people necessarily know that the patents expire. And after they expire, then that's when anybody and everybody can make and use the drug. But the time period during which, so it's 20 years from the date you ask the patent office for it. So you may only have it for 15 years because if it takes five years to get it, you don't, you don't actually have it for 20 years. I didn't know um, that. <laughs> right. So you have that time period to recoup your investment. I think another thing people probably don't know about the revenues that are being generated in science more so than many other industries is that they fund the failures in the sense that if you have a hundred drugs in your pipeline, one's going to make it. So something has to pay for the research and development of the 99 failures because developing drugs is so challenging and so difficult, even just from figuring out what on the molecular level in the body you're going to go after and whether you can find something in the body like, Oh, that, that particular protein is doing something wrong. Well, you may not, be able to develop a drug to block whatever it's doing. Um, it can take 10 years to figure out whether you can or can't do that. Um, and then there's different modalities by which you can do it. You can do it with a pill, just a small molecule drug, or you can do it with the um, injection of, a, of an antibody or some other type of protein that's a large molecule drug. Um, and so there's lots of different ways to even attack a problem. Um, to find something that that works in the body for medicine. You know, there's two ways to look at this, right? There's the business side of it, and then there's this sort of mission side that you know someone's going to live because you defended the work of scientists. I think that's... Right. That's I guess the, the bottom line, I mean, patents are mentioned in the Constitution as well, um, that uh, to promote innovation. And... So if companies or individuals don't have that period of protection, there is no incentive to spend the money because the second you come out with your drug, someone could copy it and you would not, it would not be a sustainable business model. Uh, the only way to sustain the business model is to be able to recoup that investment uh, that you've made. You know, it's um, funny with, with showbiz, I am going to use the analogy because it kind of works here especially with musicians, it used to be that you had to buy their record and you would go see their show. Now you can, for a small fee, you can download a bunch of people's music. And a lot of these musicians do not make close to what musicians used to make. And I'm just thinking of pulling one off the top. I had Amy Mann is a very gifted musician. I don't know if you're familiar with her. Mm -hmm. but, you know, Amy Mann probably makes a fraction of what she would have had they had very different, uh, a different way of dealing with the music industry. And there are all these 
there's a different generation who thinks that things should be as close to free as possible. And I don't think they understand what happens when you do that, that you're going to dry up certain supplies because people can't make a living providing you the entertainment you think to which you're entitled. Um, and I think that is not far off from when you're looking at things like drugs. If someone were to say, well, we should just, we should make these drugs less profitable or somehow change the way we're doing things. Is there any of that kind of push um, from the public? Do you see any of that in any of your work? Um, I mean, certainly the company that I work for does all the time. Um, and another layer of complexity there is our healthcare system and all the middlemen that are in it. And so when we sell a drug, there are three different middlemen from the insurance carrier to the doctor sometimes makes money off of prescribing our drugs because of legislation from the federal government, not from anything that we're doing. So there's, depends on if it's Medicare or Medicaid and private insurance. And there's all these people that take a cut. Sometimes drug companies are getting 20% of the price that you would see. Um, and I think a lot of, yeah, I think a lot of people don't know how um, dysfunctional our healthcare system has actually become with the systems and incentives that are set up. Um, in other words, if a health plan is making a percentage of the drug that they're allowing their health plan members to have, they want the drug to be more expensive. They're incentivized for pharma to raise prices because if they are taking 10% of it, they want 10% of more, not less. Are you saying that if Blue Cross Blue Shield, they can actually make money off of the drugs that they say are yes. okay to use? Yes. I, had no, I had no idea. Um, and it's very interesting how uh, there are major industrialized countries that have what I will call socialized medicine, which will probably freak some people out and excite other people. Um, but there is, there's various forms of socialized medicine, and this is not either of our specialties, so I won't get lost in it. But I have heard, and now I'm starting to understand just a fraction more, that the drug companies are, are selling their drugs at different prices to different countries. And that's how some of those countries are able to make their systems work. True. Yes. The, but the issue in many of those other countries is that the people cannot get access to the drugs. So if you have, like if it's an oncology drug and whereas here, you know, you might have to show that for two months, I'm making this up as an example, sure. that your chemotherapy didn't work or shrink your tumor mm -hmm. in another country where that drug is a fraction of the price. You have to show that for a year you didn't, and you're more likely to die and not get the drug. Yeah, if it, for a year it didn't work, the chances are after eight months you were dead. Yes. Not so, to be too much of a downer, but. Yeah, so I, you know, depend, obviously it depends on the country, but many um, 
very expensive drugs that you can get your insurance to eventually cover here. Believe it or not, you can get coverage here much faster than a lot of other countries where the price is lower for that drug. Why do you think so many of us, including me, are so ill-informed about how drug costs happen and all of this aspect of our lives? What, why do you I think mean, I think uh, I, the cynical side of me would say it's that's what the business end of it has always wanted, right? Is <laughs> to keep it just like I don't understand the mortgage crisis. Like, <laughs> ask me to explain that. Like, there's this person backs that person, and that's backed by this, and you know it's complicated, right? So, right. Um, I, I, it, I do know it, that a lot of people made money, and a lot of people got screwed. Yeah. That I know. So, uh, but it's complicated. But it, well, we're smart people. I. You, you, we just talked yeah. about how smart you are. And I, I like to think I'm smart. I think there is a certain degree of a shell game going on in some of this stuff. Yes. And I can't hold you responsible. Sorry, I won't do it. <laughs> if you hear that, listeners? I'm not going to lay you old, Erica, responsible. He's just a small cog in a giant machine. Yes. He's trying to help people, too, by the way. Um, but completely aside in all of this have you ever you know we we've already talked about how you felt like you could do whatever you wanted <laughs> to a degree because of your upbringing but have you ever run into even surprisingly some kind of resistance just because you're a woman and go what or oh you, yes I all mean, the time and i i all the time and i my goal as an in-house attorney on these big litigations has always been to defend our patents, our innovation and defend science and the scientists who labored for hours and came up with the medicine. Um, but what I found with some of the big law firms and, um, you know, older male partners who have been doing it for a long time is if it's not their idea, it's not a good idea. So I, figure out ways to make them think my ideas are their ideas. And if, if the, I don't, if that's what it takes to win and to shift the case and to shift the strategy, I have no issue with that. Um, so I feel like I often played kind of armchair psychologist, like what will get this person to adopt the direction I think this case needs to go? Is it their ego that I need to play to? Yeah, okay. Um, so, you know, and then, and then there are the refreshingly large number of men who I do find listen to women equally well. And I know that's because of the trails blazed by my mother and my grandmother, uh, of being there before me. Um, and I, I find that's the norm really is that I'm equally listened to and valued as a lawyer. Um, but there are, you know, those old school people that uh, don't even know that they're not listening as well because I'm a woman. Well, thanks. I, I'm trying to get as much from you in as short a period of time. So we're kind of all over the place. Uh, I am going to wrap up soon. I wanted to see, this is not, 
at all. Well, first of all, you've changed your job recently. Now yes. you're doing something completely different, right? Or yes. not completely. What, what are you doing now? I moved into the transactional group. So I'm doing strategic transactions, um, out licenses, in licenses, collaborations. Um, so for example, if we have a molecule that we've developed to a certain point and decided it's not in a therapeutic area that we're interested in moving into, we will provide it to another company for a cost to go and develop. Like, hey, we got this to phase two, just to use as an example, mm -hmm. FDA, FDA um, approval in, in this country has three phases, one, two, and three. Um, and so those types of uh, legal contracts, really, and arrangements, or we might, you know, a lot of companies now have COVID-related collaborations for very obvious reasons. Um, sure. It's in, in everybody's best interest to put uh, resources and heads together to come up with solutions quickly. So there are, there are several collaborations um, around COVID-19 too. So, so again, to, to liken it to showbiz, uh, let's say that you were ABC and you're, you came up with a show and as it's in development, you realize, you know, this is a little naughtier, a little more adult. This is more HBO material. You might say, hey, HBO, we're gonna keep the rights to this, but we're gonna license it. If you're interested, you can take this over. It's more on brand for you. And not that they necessarily do, it's not exactly what happens, but sometimes places do all sorts of things. You'd be surprised, but so it would be something, I know I kind of bastardized it, but just kind of similar, would that be? Yeah, exactly like that. Okay. Cool. So I, I wanna wrap up with the, Look, we're going through a crazy ass time. I can't, we've got a pandemic. We have, and I don't know if you felt this way. I, I feel like my eyes were opened to the amount of bigotry and racism and outright hatred that's in the country that I didn't know existed or didn't want to know existed. And also the the ease with which certain people are willing to accept authoritarianism. I, I feel like to some people, what I just said is really over the top. And so if it is, please correct me. What, what's your, first of all, what's your take on that? And then what do you think moving forward? How, do you, how are you handicapping our odds to get through all of this? <laughs> The pandemic or the racism or both? Oh, uh, oh and the authoritarian. Do not leave out the authoritarianism, oh, the my authoritarianism. favorite of the three. I'm already too conditioned to know what you're talking about with the authoritarianism. <laughs> is that the Catholicism? No, yeah. What do you mean, um, Eric? The big brother is in all our interests. Um, you, you know, I think what's been happening is mostly beautiful and amazing and inspiring. And um, I have certainly been more of a follower than a leader, but I am reading books on racism, um, watching TV shows. I took a bias test myself. Um, uh, Harvard has all these bias tests that you can take to figure out your own reactions. Um, and um, in my own company and culture, I've seen huge progress in the last 
few months in terms of open dialogue, a focus on not just hiring uh, diverse people, but figuring out how to cultivate better what they have to offer in the workplace, concrete tools that have been implemented. Um, so I'm more, I try to be more inspired even though a lot of times what you read is disheartening and um, can make me feel sad inside. But um, overall, the direction that we're moving seems pretty awesome to me. Wow, you make me feel good about that. And that has not really happened a lot. You and my wife both are very much, you know, half full glass people. I'm like, the glass is broken and we're all going to get cut and die of tetanus. So, well, and as for the authoritarianism, <laughs> like all I can say is get out there and vote, right? I mean, <laughs> right. Vote, vote, vote. Uh, I like that. What do you think about the chances of a vaccine for this flu uh, thing? Uh, it's hard. I mean, I know pharma's trying, but it's not easy. Um, Still, I have to have confidence in the numbers, the, the number of pharma companies, which is in the hundreds that are um, trying to either develop not just a vaccine, there's also therapeutics for it. So if you do get it to significantly increase your chance of survival and not having a horrible mm. reaction. There's lots of those too. And if, even if we had a bunch of those, that would be much better, right? Right. I mean, look what we've done with HIV AIDS. I mean, that I, I, you know, for people who aren't old enough to remember, it was a death sentence within weeks or months when I was in law school. And now there are people who like take a pill. And I'm not, I'm not saying that it's not a serious problem or that we don't need to take care of things like that, but it has changed. And that has been through people like who you work with and work for. So I like, you, Eric Olson, and I like what you do. <laughs> and so I also really love that you're willing to come and talk to me. Uh, I really appreciate being on this Therapy Legal. Thank you so much for spending time with me. Thank you, Eric. It was super fun. So that was Eric Olson, as you might have figured out. Uh, we did that interview a couple of weeks ago before um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg had passed, so there's a little met, uh, mention of her. Uh, but I just love uh, having fascinating, interesting friends who are not the same as me, who don't have the same background, and who stretch me as a person. I can't recommend that kind of lifestyle enough. Um, I also can't recommend Abe's Muffins enough. They're vegan, they're allergen-free, your kids will love them. Did I mention they have a fudge brownie that I want to rub all over my body? It's that good. It's a little nuts. Um, speaking of a little nuts, uh, make sure you get out there and vote if you haven't voted already to get rid of some of the nuts that we currently have and replace them with good, decent, honest human beings. Uh, I would like that very much and I think that we would be in a different position than we are right now if we had a decent president. Did I say that out loud? So uh, in any event, uh, take care of yourselves and take care of each other. Wear a mask, okay? God damn it. Wear a mask. It's not that hard. 
and uh, take care of yourselves and each other, please. Um, if you have any questions or comments, go to isthatreallylegal.com, leave me a message. And uh, otherwise, we'll see you next week. Be good. I love you all.